It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, welcome along. It is 2024. No, it's not. Hello, welcome along. It's Christmas. <laughs> Well, it says New Year at the top of this sheet. I just can't do this. I feel like the snow globe has been shaken, Jane. I can't see the view. Don't worry. I don't know what it is yet. What are we doing? This is a podcast to see you through until the new year when everything will be, relatively speaking, back to normal. Okay, so we're just in Twixmas now, are we? Yeah, we're totally in Twixmas, which I used to really hate as a kid. I remember just... What's the point of these days? Now, as a grown woman, I think it can be lovely. So I hope that they've delivered for you these Twixmas days. Because, let's face it, there's no obligation to have a good time. And it's often on those days that you find, curiously, you are having a good time. When do you ever feel obligated to have a good time? Um, well, I do I do think Christmas Day <laughs> does put a certain amount of pressure on you. My voice went fine. Christmas Day. <laughs> Uh, we've picked four of our favourite interviews from the last year on Off Air and we're going to give you the highlight reel. I just like saying sizzle reel, so I'm just going to say here's our sizzle reel. And now a New Year quiz. Come on, Kate. God, I love Kate's quiz. It's not really slick, is it, this? No, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. Doing my best. What was the name of Prince Harry's memoir published in January? Spare. Spare. Correct. Who won the Women's Six Nations? Ooh, England. England. Yes. Where was King Charles's coronation held? Westminster Abbey. Yes. Which country became the 31st to join NATO in April? Ukraine. No. No, it's applied, but it hasn't got its thing. Um, oh, Finland. Yes. Oh. Who won the Men's Premier League this year? Oh, I think it was Manchester City again. It was. Whose set was cut short at Glastonbury? Oh, Dua Lipa. No. She uh, wasn't at Glastonbury. Oh, um, hang on, we'll get there. Lana Del Rey. Yes. Yeah. Uh, which music artist shaved off his hair in November? Oh, I don't know. Starrell, uh, Harold Styles. Harry Styles? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I went all funny because I thought... Harold? <laughs> I call him Harold. It's a much a joke. And which epidemic was thought to be being brought over to the UK from Paris in September? Bedbugs. Oh, bedbugs. Yes. Yeah, thank yep. goodness we never found any of them here. Yeah. Do you know, I think we need to update that story, don't we? Because we weren't invaded in the way that we were for about 48 hours, leading the news with the arrival of bedbugs. Yes. It's still time. Yeah. Uh, right, thank you very much for that quiz, Kate. I like Kate's quizzes enormously. Uh, the winner gets to pick which interview we play first. Who was the winner? Me. So it's David Tennant. None other than the actor David Tennant. Well, post-drama school, it was... Uh 
it was a tour of a Brecht play, The Resistible Rise of Arturo Uwe. Oh, yes. And we toured around in a little van and did one night stands all over Scotland uh, with 784, Scottish People's Theatre. That was my first post-drama school gig. I had done one job at drama school, an episode of a, uh, a children's drama, a bit, sort of pre-drama school, sorry, an episode of a children's drama called The Secret of Croft Moor. Um, what was that about? There was a family who lived on a mother and a son who lived on a croft somewhere in the Highlands, and their city folk family came to visit, and I was the slightly cynical, sneery cousin. You really want the plot plot of this? I'm really no, going not the into whole it, thing. Aren't no, I? no, not the no. whole thing. But I mean, do you remember thinking at the time, "This is me now"? Oh, this is absolutely, absolutely. Right, okay. I was 16, and I had decided that, that this is what I wanted to do with my life. And my parents gave up trying to put up any resistance. And instead, my dad went, well, let's be practical about this. And he took some photographs of me in the back garden and sent them into Scottish television. And by, of course, at the time, this just felt like this is what happened. But by some, I now know how unlikely this is. They landed on the desk of a, a producer director called Haldane Duncan, who happened to be looking for a teenage boy to do this. His Don't those sliding doors moments, I know, you? yeah. Because what if it hadn't been the right day? Well, quite. I mean, it, it, there's no reason why it should have been. And, and by chance I got that and then I, that same year I went to drama school and, and that was it, yeah. So, uh, but lots of people go to drama school and then drive around doing Brecht productions. Yeah. By the way, I love the way I pretended I knew what that Brecht play was. You did, yeah. Well, I did was I? very convinced. Did I though, David? <laughs> then yeah. mind. We'll, we'll leave it in because it made me sound highly intelligent. It really did. I'm yeah. sure you know all about your Bertolt Brecht. Uh, yeah, I've certainly seen one or two. Of, uh, uh, <laughs> it's a parable about the rise of Hitler. That's the right. Rise yeah. You knew that. I think it's coming back to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so there must have been loads of people at your drama school who just have never made a living out of acting. Um, it's a tough, it's a tough it is tough. industry, yes, that's certainly true. And yes, and that was my aspiration, really. I just wanted to make it... Because everyone tells you you won't make a living at it. I didn't know... We didn't know actors. There weren't precedents in our life growing up. But but the received wisdom is actors don't make a living. It's not a it's not a proper job. It's not a career. It's not you won't you won't live happily ever after. So all I wanted was to prove them wrong. I suppose I just wanted to be able to live off it. Yeah. So touring around a van doing a a break play was absolutely that was all I needed to do. And now there are articles saying things like with headlines like Why is David Tennant always on my television? <laughs> Um, I mean, one of the reasons is you're, you're rather good at acting, so maybe that is one of the reasons why you're always on our telly. But the, the stuff you've done with Michael Sheen has, um, in fact, we interviewed Ruth Jones last week. Oh, yes. And Ruth uh, is obviously the Welsh connection to, to Michael. Uh -huh. And we were talking about Staged, and I'm afraid, I actually, this is the show that you do Indeed, with Michael which started Sheen. during lockdown, yeah. Which started during, yeah, and I'm afraid I described it as insufferable. Oh. Not because I didn't find it funny, but uh -huh. because you're actorial personas or oh, very insufferable yes yes exactly we I invite mean, you to laugh at us though rather than be infuriated uh, by us yeah. i hope yes do you think you are the more thespian of the two of you or do you think michael out thespes you in real life in real life please oh he's much more of a thespian than i am definitely i mean he's not here to defend himself so i can get away with that how does that manifest itself I don't really know. I don't know that I can entirely back my argument up. I just feel like I, I should 
slag him off as he's not here. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I think both of us are relatively normal, actually. And we're both sort of... I think that's probably why we get on. I think there's... Um, I, I don't know that either of us are wildly... Well, it depends how one is defining the word thespian. I feel like that word comes with a certain pejorative assumptions about it that aren't necessarily positive. Okay, you, you might you might be right, so we'll we'll move on. Yeah. Um, you actually had trouble getting into the building um, because there were some school children coming in at the same time. Now, if they had caught a glimpse of you, I suspect there would have been mayhem, uh, so there was a slight delay. <laughs> is, is this the Doctor Who problem? Which does linger, and you're about that. There are new episodes featuring yeah. you, which are about to be shown yes. in the in the winter. That's right. Yes, um, I, I know it's a huge part of your life, but mm. it can be the whole Doctor Who thing. It's quite a responsibility being involved in it. It's, it casts a long shadow for sure, um, but the the positives definitely outweigh the negatives. It it, it takes on a, a a slightly different shape your life when when you're associated with something like that, and it's a it's a absolute privilege. But it does mean you 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 lose a level of anonymity for sure. And I remember Doctor Who back in the seventies when it let's be honest, it did look as though it was made on a budget of about seventeen pounds ninety. Yes, well, uh, it would, yes. Th I mean, things have changed, haven't things they? Things have changed. Although our expectations have changed. I mean, as a kid, I was, I I thought that was the greatest television there had ever been. I mean, it was. It was. It, it was a brilliant show. I mean, yes, it was a, probably a little bit... The budget was a bit smaller than it is now. But that was partly to do with the, the nature of television at the time. Uh, and But it didn't get in the way of it being magical stuff. I'm trying to work out who your doctor would have been. Was it, it... Was, it was Tom Baker into Peter Davison, yeah. Okay. That so, was my era. Right, and... They were both... Well, who was the most popular of those two with the with the Doctor Whoites? I can't remember. Well, Tom Baker did it for seven years. Oh, it must be him, surely. So, so, and the the long scarf tends to be quite a sort of an iconic reference even now. But but Peter's time on it was just as popular in terms of viewing figures and all that. It was that's when it was really at its zenith. So, if you had to choose between, I don't know, a time traveling individual or one of your more gritty roles, uh, Broadchurch, I suppose, is another one that people obviously will know. Right. Yeah. What What would you pick? Oh. Don't make me do that. It's lovely to have that variety. What a treat! Um, the, 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 you know, it's such a. There's such different flavors, and there's such to be able to to tell those different types of stories to to different types of audiences or even the same audience. It's, it's a real privilege. It's not. You know. Well, you're also coming up in the new Julie Cooper. Yes. Is it Rivals? Rivals. Rivals, yes. not Riders. It's Rivals. It's the second novel. Yeah. I mean, I had definitely, perhaps I'm more familiar with Julie's works than Bertolt. Than Brecht. If, if I'm honest. Uh, I've definitely read this. And you are the, um, from memory, the very rather seedy, am I right, head of a local TV company? Yes, Tony Baddingham, Lord Baddingham, in fact. Um, he's a, uh, he's a, uh, I suppose he's the villain of the piece in some ways. Yes, he's pretty unscrupulous, at times rather Machiavellian, Um eaten up with a, with a little bit of sort of uh, class envy and uh, and they're all in in the in the Cotswolds behaving despicably <laughs> yes I, I must admit I can't I can't be the only person who can't wait for this um do you do you get any um what do the tabloids call them romp romp scenes it's a Jilly Cooper adaptation everyone's well, everyone's romping furiously that's uh, uh what but what's great it's because it because it's but, now... hang on you haven't answered the question 
Have you got some romping scenes? What do you mean? Do I do I have well, I been dealing with you, an intimacy coordinator? Your fans Is that the will question want to know. I, I don't think there's a character who doesn't in this story. Okay. Uh, so it's but, but it, you know the, this, these books. Well, I mean, she's still she's still working. She's about to publish a new novel called Tackle about, uh, about a football, football team. Isn't it? Yeah. yeah, but uh, this was written, you know, back in the mid eighties. So yeah. it's now a period piece. It's you know, it's it, it's akin to doing a sort of Dickens or something. You know, you have to approach it with that level of recreating the moment that it was in, mm. um, which of course brings to life all the, uh, the, the 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 sort of politics. With, with the you know the, the actual politics and also the sort of sexual politics of the time, we now see that with this uh, objectivity, which which is, makes it a fascinating thing to be to be doing. I thought of it that way, so it's it's still set in the eighties. Oh, absolutely! Oh, okay. oh, absolutely! Yeah. Yeah. So the intimacy uh, coaches. I mean, back when you started, they were well, they just did not. No, it's a, it's an addition to our industry. And for is sure. it the right thing to? Have oh, done? of course it is. Of course it is. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it's a it's an industry that's finding. I think we have a fantastic one on our show. Um, she's she is the right balance of respectfulness and sense of humour, which is because it, it's a tr- it's a tricky, weird thing to do, isn't it? You're having to recreate something that you, you know you, it is the most intimate of moments. That's a very private, personal thing, and you're having to make it safe, and you're having to make sure everyone is respected, and at the same time, you're having to make it look real and make it look a bit sexy and a bit whatever the scene needs to be, perhaps violent, perhaps perhaps it's about abuse. There are all sorts of uh, reasons for telling mm. uh, those parts of that story. Um, and But to have someone whose job it is to make sure everyone's safe, everyone's covered, and that means, you know, that from every from every aspect of production, uh, nobody is... is it, 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 everyone feels comfortable with something that is a bit uncomfortable, and that's yeah. really important. So you never get over the oddness of no, doing of it? No, of course you don't. No. Of course you don't. I mean, you're having to sort of be in states of undress in front of... Uh, I mean, they're not necessarily strangers, but they're the crew you're working with every day, but that in itself is rather odd. How many people are in these rooms apart from... Well, you'll, uh, you, you, with with a scene like that, you'll try and have a closed set, which means it will be a bare minimum of crew and the the, uh, the, the the monitors that are often linked up throughout wherever the production base is will be will be closed down to just the right. absolute essential crew. So hopefully you'll get it down to a, a sort of handful. Um, just, to, again, just to make it a little bit less awkward and embarrassing and difficult and, uh, and, and so that nobody feels like... Their 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 work is being abused for the wrong reasons. Um, you are you're fifty two. I couldn't believe that actually, David. I'm going to just say that it's very true. Well, Unfortunately, it's it's incontrovertible. Yeah, but how how do you do it? People will want to know whether you exfoliate, whether there's a moisture. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm actually deadly serious here. I don't know that I do anything particularly. Is it in your genes? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, listen, I'm in the middle of a press tour at the moment, so there's somebody outside painting my face and making me look much healthier than I really am. Uh, so uh, it's all smoke and mirrors, isn't it? I don't know. How do you do it? <laughs> I'm 75, but I, and I don't... Oh, actually, you are never I 70. I am, I know, it's amazing. That's nonsense. I know, it's incredible. I've never smoked and I have a very, very clean living lifestyle. You are not 75. No, no, I'm not, David. Right, OK. <laughs> Stop it. We'll leave it there. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> How old are you? <laughs> 50.
59. You should have all of that. Of course she's not. No, nobody did. David Tennant, he's a bit of a star, isn't he, Dave? You enjoyed that, didn't you? Well, the man's got a twinkle. It's <laughs> lovely hair. Well, I think actually you got your twinkle out for him, didn't you? Well, I mean, it has to get, it gets an annual airing. <laughs> Who's going to be the beneficiary in 2024? I tell you what, David Dimbleby was uh, the recipient of your twinkle back in the day. Now, let's have a little bit of Claire Balding. Claire Balding loves dogs. In her new book, she investigates our national obsession with the animals, from dogs who can smell cancer, who can help dementia, who round up sheep like no human or drone ever can, to those who bring absolute joy to family life. Now, one-third of British households have at least one dog, and there are 13 million dogs across our islands. But she started with our favourite dog, well, my favourite dog, anyway, uh, because it is the glory of 2023 that Nancy has been included in a book. You've missed out the most important dog that is in this book. What? Which? Nancy. Nancy, Nancy the Greyhound. And Dora gets her mention, Jane. I know, and she, she's taken the news really calmly. Has she? Yeah, well, she hasn't actually attacked um, a visitor to the house now for getting on for three weeks. There we go. She's so, yeah. mellowing. I, I, like yeah. you, she's mellowing. Oh, well, I wouldn't get that far. Dora is my tabby, I should say. Get on with the interview. Um, no, Fee. no. She, Fee's trying to interview you, Claire. No, but th- where did Dora come from? She came from, well, do I, the um, Rescue Centre Animal Sanctuary in Basingstoke. Yes. During lockdown. Why? Because you posed for a photograph with her for the cover of Hampshire Life. And I sent you a photo and said, you have to have this kitten. And she's I... really sweet. And then she's, you've changed her. <laughs> and now so she's vicious. Dora is so not sweet. So there was one terrible incident. I haven't been round to Jane's house very much. Six I'm, I'm only allowed. <laughs> They're kind of on day release once a decade. Uh, but I, I bent down to stroke Dora. <laughs> yeah. and that was a mistake. Yes. And she just, she clasped all of her claws yeah. around my hand to the point at which I kind of had to throw her off, yes. you know, as if it was an Olympic sport. So I, I, both of you have a copy of this book, Fee, yes. because, of, because of Nancy being in it. Jane actually bought one, actually paid her own money and bought it yes. at, at the book Not launch. Not cheap. No, um, no, because that was being sold at full price in an independent <laughs> bookshop. Oh, yes, yeah, sorry. Was, yes, <laughs> indeed. Anyway, um, to, I guess, I would think, just look at the index, see if she gets a mention, see that she does read that bit. And in the bit about you both, I do make the point, which I stand... Oh, unless they edited this out for fear of legal action, I basically make the point that, that Fee is a dog and Jane is a cat. No, that's still in there. Is it? Good. <laughs> and you'll be hearing from my people. <laughs> Uh, so yes, you very uh, you came to interview Nancy because she's a rescue greyhound, mm. and you've got a chapter about the uh, the joy of the rescue dog. And I have to say that um, for my children, because Nancy is very much a family pet, uh, even though I think she's just mine, uh, it has it has made their life that that they and a dog that they love uh, included in a book. It's just it's proved to be quite a kind of magical thing for them. Oh wow! So I just say an enormous thank you to Gosh. that. I mean, obviously, it doesn't matter. I'm on the radio every day, Claire, no. and doing numerous other things. The fact that the pet dog and a meal that we cooked for you analysis in a book, that seems to outshine absolutely everything. I think Brian and Barbara got to mention as well. They did. They're my kittens. Mm. Yep. Yeah. Look, let's talk about lots of other things that are in the book, but well, thank you for mentioning for, our first, part in it. I also want to point out that um, I have come bearing gifts today. Uh, a, little, a little Chardonnay from um, Argentina because... Earlier today, I was doing the wine podcast. How with... much earlier, Claire? 
a couple of hours ago. I've, I've sobered up a lot. Um, no, I was doing the wine podcast. The, the, was it called The Wine Times, is it called? Yeah, wine yes. Times? yeah. with Will Lyons. Yes, yes, and Annika Rice. Yeah. So I've come from there and they said, would I like to take the rest of the of any of the bottles? And I said, yes, because I knew you would enjoy it. I knew Jane wouldn't because she needs fizz. Makes that very clear. And she's at a party that doesn't have any. <laughs> yep. <laughs> So enough about your book launch. Right, carry on with the interview. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, so look, let's talk about Isle of Dogs. Uh, so the opening to the book um, is quite something, actually, Claire. Would you like me to just read you? Well, you just to remind you of it. Yes, do. But, yeah. but also, there's a there's a section that I can't read. And I went when I went when we were doing the audio book. I I had to go back and you know, because it's really sad and I was struggling with it a bit. Don't, don't read that. Bit. OK, OK. Well, I think I know what you're referring to and we mm. might come on to that a little bit later. Uh, but the book opens like this. I was so lucky to grow up surrounded by dogs. The very first being I truly connected with as a kindred spirit was not my mother, but her dog, Candy the Boxer. Candy was the one I looked to for reassurance and support and she was the one who helped me transition from crawling to walking by allowing me to grab her rolls of excess skin and haul myself to my feet. She was the one who comforted me if I was crying. She was my playmate and until my little brother was born, my one and only companion. Gosh. I mean, that's quite something, isn't it? The dog was the thing. Is it? Yes. See, to me, that's that's completely normal. <laughs> yeah, I think I probably thought she was my mother because that's the face I connected with. But mum, mum had a, um, you know, she she was. I think she agrees with that completely. And it's amazing how many uh, people come up to me and say, "Gosh, your childhood." I, I tell my children, you know, <laughs> read your the first book I wrote, which is called My Animals and Other Family, which kind of charts this rather feral childhood, and and lots of parents use it as a, you know, way of showing their children that that it's perfectly fine yeah. to be ignored. But for a time... Till you're you... 21 and then ignored a bit more. You... <laughs> you... Okay, gosh. How long have we got today, Claire? <laughs> um, but you actually thought that you were a dog for a while in your childhood. I did, yeah. I thought it was a good thing to be. I think it's fine to be a dog, don't you? Yes, I've always... Well, I thought I was a cat. You oh. see, that's the weird thing. I what kind very, of cat? I was very much a cat person. Uh, I don't think I was really very breed-specific about it. No, but I mean, personality-wise, what kind of cat? Oh, uh, you know, warm, cuddly, fluffy, not an one. Not like an exploring cat or an investigative cat or a cat that could leap from roof to roof, you know? Oh, I see what you mean. No, I think the kind of curl up and, uh, you know, be heavily petted by a kind human kind uh -huh. of cat. And I think I just absolutely adored the symmetry of a cat's face. And actually, my mum said that I wouldn't go to sleep without a little postcard of a cat that my granny had sent me. And it was posted on my cot and I couldn't go to sleep unless oh, I was wow. looking at a cat. Isn't that weird? No, I think that's just lovely. Yeah. Anyway, look, there's... there's I'm this quite enjoying, going off in quite strange I'm directions. I'm quite enjoying Jane's face. I, I, so I, that's I'm more than learning, you ever knew no, about her, I'm exactly. Learning see? a great deal about you both. Yeah. Yeah. So do you want to talk about Archie or is that the bit oh, that's no, too the, painful? The, no, no, no. I, I just don't want to talk about the end of Archie's life. But no, the, the sort of purpose behind the book was give, me giving myself an excuse to hang out with other people's dogs. So off we go around the country. I drag Alice with me for some of it. And... Um, it, and actually, she writes the last chapter um, to give her point of view because I've, you know, sort of... I've mocked her throughout um, for her excessive negativity, <laughs> so she has to put her point of view. Um, but, yeah, I just wanted to sort of see where we are with dogs in, in the country right now, the sort of things they do for us. And, 
It is extraordinary. I mean, you come across dogs that do all sorts, and you were talking about it a bit earlier on the programme, but, you know, dogs are an extraordinary bonus to our lives, but also if we train them properly, there are all sorts of things they can do that are really massively positive. So what was the thing that you came across that most surprised you? Well, the theory from some historians is that the domestication of dogs, of them actually living in our homes, becoming part of the family, didn't really happen until Victorian times. But yesterday at Stratford Literary Festival, I spent my train journey back with a medieval historian who was terrific. And he said, oh, no, there's loads of evidence that in the Middle Ages, dogs were part of the family and not only sort of buried with knights. And, you know, you quite often see those marble tombs and a dog will be, oh, yeah. um, you know... Part of it. Part mm. of it, exactly. Um, but also that they were really regarded as another another child. So I think it is. it goes back way further. I went to a... There was a Neolithic tomb on mainland Orkney that I went and explored and uh, called Queen Hill. And that had a central chamber for the humans and then chambers around for the dogs. Now, that's 5,000 years old. So it's not a modern thing that they've been part of the home. But I think that sort of the popularisation and the fashion of having dogs in your house um, definitely was rubber stamped by Queen Victoria, mm. who had yeah. an amazing array of dogs. I mean, all sorts of weird and wonderful breeds. She had Canadian Eskimo dogs, Bedouin dogs, truffle dogs. She had the first Pekingese in this country because off her subjects were going and conquering the world and, and coming back with trophies. I mean, not conquering it, but, you know, making the empire. Coming back with trophies and they would bring dogs because they knew she liked a dog. So Luti, the Pekingese, was taken from the summer palace in Peking. Mm. looted from there, from the imperial family. And mm. given that dogs have been part of our lives for such a long time, it is extraordinary, isn't it, that we seem to only be just discovering their true potential in terms of um, medicine. So I was really struck by the chapter in your book about the dogs who can detect cancer, mm -hmm. the way that we're using dogs to sniff out possibly Alzheimer's as well, and there are also those connections that dogs can make with dementia sufferers and people who are on the autistic spectrum. Yeah, so a combination of things, really. Um, first of all, the medical detection dogs, and those are the ones... Claire Guest is amazing. She'd be a cracking interview for you. Um, but she set up this organisation understanding what dogs could smell. I mean, they've got, you know, a million times more olfactory receptors than we have, and they can sense all sorts of things in us, and they can sort of smell a change in our, in our makeup, And... They can be trained to smell specific cancers or the latest thing that they're, they're investigating at the moment is early signs of Parkinson's. And that's a really hard thing to for, for medicine to detect. Um, but separately from that, Dogs for Good is a charity I went to visit and spend time with and watch puppies being trained. And they are looking at how they can train dogs to help uh, children with autism and, and really help the parents because if the parents can... Um, sort of give instructions, as it were, through the dog, they can actually create a really effective team, as it were, between child and dog and make things um, more manageable. Mm. You know, can't, it's not going to cure anything, but mm. it's going to make things more manageable. And the other thing is with, with people suffering from dementia, they're looking into what dogs can do in terms of if an alarm goes off, taking medication to somebody. And I, you know, and I know from my from my dad, he wouldn't, he'd never shout at, at the dogs waking him up, let's say, but he'd get pretty cross with 
any human who tried. So um, and my parents used to, when we were kids, they'd always send the dogs to wake us up. Simple things, because you have a different response yeah. to the dogs, uh, you know, providing something for you or telling you to do something than you would to a person. Why are some breeds better at learning those kind of things than others? Well, to be perfectly frank, some, some breeds are fabulously intelligent. The poodle in particular, massively brilliant at and, and trainable and instructable. The Labrador is very food driven and therefore can be very easily taught things and wants to please. Most dogs actually do want to do a job. They're quite keen to learn something, learn a skill. And the thing I really learned through this is the difference between exercise and stimulation and how much dogs actually want and need stimulation as well as exercise so dogs that are scent dogs they want to be sniffing things out and you can play games with them to to do this i went to a brilliant ex police officer runs a, a thing called sandy scent school and off i went to worcester cricket ground to see these dogs being trained to detect you know to find things that were hidden in the stands and they're just pets but mm. but they really enjoy doing it and it's made a big difference and enhanced their their mm. lives what's so, the thickest breed of dog well is it a greyhound no. No. no do you know the greyhound is the oldest domesticated dog well i learned that from your book and the only one mentioned in the king james bible yeah and Shakespeare and Chaucer. And actually, I think they they're not, are. They're not, they're, you know, they, they are good at what they're good at. And I don't, you know, Nancy, for example, she knows when she's had enough after about seven and a half minutes. <laughs> I've had enough now, can I go home? Can I just ask a quick question about, um, you implied, perhaps you didn't mean this, but dogs, can they get bored of a particular walk? So if you take your dog day in, day out to your local park oh. or down to the river, whatever it might be, are they actually saying, do you know what, I've done this? No, I think because they, they sniff different things and different things happen. No, I don't think they get bored of a route and actually they learn a route pretty quickly. Oh, okay. Archie definitely knew the route he wanted to go. Um, and they can, they, and they know when they've turned for home as well. But no, I think it's just different things. Exercises, obviously, is running about and, and socialising with other dogs. That's mm. all important. Stimulation is go and fetch and retrieve or find something. Hide things, find them. It's that. So when your dog begs for the ball to be thrown and you feel you've done it 27 times already, are you being really cruel if you just say no more and hide the ball? Well, at some point you probably want to say and that's enough. But, you know... This is all hypothetical. You could read a book to them instead. Well, <laughs> Different yeah. kind of intellectual stimulation. Yes. Are you thinking about getting a dog, Jane? I've always been thinking, but I mean, I've, I've just got to be completely honest, it won't fit. It's not fair on any dog at the moment. And, and that's, that, that's kind of where you are, isn't it? Well, that, exactly. And I yeah. do think that is a really responsible decision. I think a lot of people think, gosh, a dog would really make our lives. But hang on, what are you doing for that dog's life? Mm. And that's why charities, rescue charities like Battersea or the Dogs Trust actually make it incredibly difficult for you to well, adopt it. Exactly. Yeah. And w one of the points I, I make and one of the things I feel really strongly is anybody who thinks they can click a button today and get a dog delivered tomorrow, frankly, shouldn't be having one mm -hmm. because that is not how it works. And if you do that, you are fueling an illegal and really irresponsible market. Um, and you might think you're doing a good thing, but you're not. That is not a great way. They, you, any good breeder or any good rescue centre is going to ask you a hundred questions about where you live, how you live, you know, who's looking after the dog, how often are you, you know, is it ever being left on its own? If so, what what are you going to do about that? And and often make you wait. I mean, you can wait a year for for a puppy, for example, if from a good breed. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? 
Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. You are listening to the Desperate Times, so I may as well download that podcast again. Podcast. It's off air with Jane and Fee to see you through until 2024. It does make me laugh when everyone says, oh, I'd be so glad to see the back of last year. Wasn't it terrible? Let's hope for better things. You think, what are the chances? No, but that's the whole point, isn't it? We have to, we just do have, we have to, to do that. we have to just pretend? No, we just have to do that every year. We yeah. always have to do that because yeah. otherwise we wouldn't bother. Okay. Uh, let's take a little trip back through time to hear from one of our cracking guests uh, in 2023, the one and only Dolly Alderton. Now, she was in to talk about her latest novel, which is called Good Materials. Good material, yeah. And just one of the... Material. Just Material. Yeah. Just Material. One of the characters in her book visits a psychic. So we asked Dolly if she'd ever been to see one. Twice a year. Really? Yeah. Well, just come to me. I'm much... I'm sure I'm cheaper. I'm, I'm no good, but I wouldn't charge you. Has you, do, you, you do it out of the Times building. <laughs> don't, for God's sake, don't mention uh, it's tax deductible work. Uh, has your psychic told you things that have then come true? Yes. And here's the interesting thing about psychics that I have found. All the stuff that comes true is always really small things about you're going to move to this road or you're going to buy a new coat or something that like these really, there are huge problems with your electrical works in your flat. And then when that moment happens, you go, Oh, that's so cool and that's the extent of it because then all the other huge love stuff none of none of that's been quite on the money and if we're being honest that is really why people go to psychics like it's mainly 
single women in their thirties. <laughs> and it's probably not actually about your electrical safety. It's not. I'm not that bothered about the electrical safety. Well, don't say that because if something terrible happened to you regarding your <laughs> no, electrical works, well, no, she did. She predicted that I had some electrical works, and then three days later, my builder rang me and said, "There's been this huge problem with the electrics." Well, that is quite. So it is. That's right. Actually. Alumni of the podcast, Elizabeth Day, we went to, we were in Indonesia together on holiday and we booked an Indonesian soothsayer medicine woman. We're like, wow, you're not going to get any more accurate than this. And I think it was the worst reading that both of us had had. And the main take home that I got that she couldn't get off and I kept trying to steer her off, but she was so fixated on it, was that my dad needs to open a hardware shop um, that I need to buy for him. Okay. That is a not what I was expecting you to say. How does how does your dad feel about this? You know, I didn't even pitch it to him. I didn't even. What would it be called? Um, I'm not sure. We did. I mean, I was. She really w- wanted to stay on that. She seemed to think it would not only fix any problem in my family life, but in my life, Dolly fixtures. Dolly fixtures. Oh my god! Very fair. Very. Oh, that's good. brilliant. <laughs> Dolly, take it. Right, I'm I'm, I will. I'm done for the day. Goodbye. <laughs> When you're a writer, you can obviously write your own ending. And I think with Jen, the ending, which we won't you know, talk about everything that she chooses, uh, it seems to me that you wanted to send a pretty powerful message mm. with that. Mm. Once you had written it, did you find that actually you'd managed to kind of shift something in yourself by writing mm. her, heading off as she does? Yeah, I do. I think... I think women choosing unconventional paths, whether that's not having children, having children on their own, having children later in life, uh, not having a partner, meeting your partner in you know later life. I think it's it's something that we're also admiring of, and it's something that so many of us aspire to. But it's very brave to do. It's still a very brave thing to do. I, I really do take my hat off to women who who divert against the pack and choose to do that. I think you have to have a huge amount of inner strength and self-knowledge. And do you still feel that pressure within your generation? You don't have to talk about yourself personally, but just amongst your contemporaries, that that path for women, uh, it is a deviation from it if you choose not to have children. There isn't a clear path now available to you as an independent, what are you, Jen? Uh, why? No, millennial. Yeah. yeah, millennial, whatever the it is. most annoying one. But you still feel that, you know, there's a kind of walking womb element to being a young woman. Here's what I think. I think, so I'm 35, so I'm in like prime time age of this stuff. This is the year where everyone tells you you've got this amount of time left, which I don't actually think is true, but it does come from all angles. I think it is really, it, I think you can forge your own path and you can do it by keeping the noise out but I think you have to be so blinkered because everywhere I turn now whether it's like I've just went and got my eyebrows dyed for the first time thank you both for noticing uh, and from the, at the appointment <laughs> at the appointment obviously and I understand why one of the first things she said was do you have children this is something that is like so in the atmosphere at a certain age everywhere and it's really hard not to be wobbled and feel like you've messed up if you've not done this thing that everyone seems to assume that you've done or wants for you. So I think you can forge that path. You just either have to have a community of like-minded women around you or you've just got to be really, really strong. The truth is a, a bloke going to have his hair done just doesn't get that question. No, totally. Just doesn't yeah. get it. He might be losing his hair, 
but yeah. he's not going to be asked. Um, by the way, when I get my eyebrows done, I'm also asked if I want my moustache doing as well, which I always find. I mean, obviously not dime brown. Oh, that yeah, no, look right. Just, just tending to. No, the worst thing that I was asked was when I first got my eyebrows plucked when I was in the very vulnerable late teens. The woman looked at my face and said, do you want the beard also? Yeah. Gosh, uh, up the sisterhood. Right. <laughs> but to go all the way back to where we started, uh, is that akin to, uh, you know, a, a young man being asked whether he wants to have his head shaved because actually it's thinning? or have his ear hairs plucked out, or his nose hair plucked out? Is it just because we don't hear men talking about that, that you know we think all of that kind of cosmetic pain is on us? Yeah, I mean, something that I found really interesting when I was interviewing uh, the men for research for the book is I had assumed wrongly that this idea, this need for physical transformation in the wake of rejection was a feminine pursuit. This is something that culturally we've been told you know that moment in Sliding Doors with Gwyneth Paltrow when she finds her boyfriend mm. in bed with yeah. another woman and then she gets the very famous crop, not unlike your crop, actually, Fee, and she suddenly has this There are many similarities <laughs> between me and Gwyneth Paltrow. Well, Dolly. I, I've met both of them and they're... Gwyneth's my favourite, but I like Fee. <laughs> anyway, back to your story, Dolly. Yeah, but they, I, I was so interested that all of them said, yes, they embarked on a makeover. This is not just something that we have absorbed from rom-coms and women's magazines, that men really feel it too, that the way that they try and raise a sense of their own self-esteem or their, um, or their own sense of worthiness for love is that they hit the gym, they you know manifest in different ways, they only eat protein, um, they lift weights. And that was something that I wanted, that vulnerability and that uncertainty, and that self-doubt and self-flagellation, I really wanted to communicate to Andy that this is definitely something that men go through as well. Where do you think Jen should find herself when she's 55? Oh, that's such a good question. Where would I want her to be? Um, I think that I would want her to be living in a way that fully aligns with her desires and her heart and mind. And I hope that she's been able to rid of all the expectations that her very traditional family had for her and that her friends had for her and society had for her. And I think maybe that would involve a partner living life alongside someone or maybe it wouldn't. But um, I have hope that she will find happiness. But the terrible truth is that Andy, the averagely successful comedian, will just marry a woman 25 years younger than him and go on to have six or seven kids if that's what he wants. Yeah. No justice, is there? Yeah. But he might make that woman very happy. Or he might not. I think <laughs> I think it is a really interesting thing to look at. I was watching a documentary about egg freezing the other day and the head of the clinic, when the interviewer said, what would you say is the one thing that a man could do that we could ask of men to just like try and address this biological inequality? She said, I think men shouldn't be allowed to have children with women younger than them. Terrific. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. That would change the world. It would change a lot, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it, Jess? Yeah. <laughs> There's only one Dolly, Dolly Alderton. Uh, always good to have her on, and good material is a cracking read. 
And now it is Clive Myrie time. Now, no year is complete without a little bit of Clive Myrie. Uh, he came to see us in Times Towers to talk about his book. It's a memoir and it's called Everything is Everything. Uh, he mentions his great uncle who fought in the First World War in the book and that's where we're going to start this piece of the interview because he didn't really know anything about him until very recently. I had no idea. So how did you find William out? William Runners, talking to my dad. Talking to my dad, having the kind of conversation about our <clears throat> life, our history, the Myri legacy that I never had with him before. And knowing I wanted to write the book, um, and he's in his 90s now, he's 94, um, we would be having these great conversations about stuff, about life. Um, and I wanted him to paint a picture of what life was like for him in Jamaica before he came to, to Britain. Um, you know, trying to get out of him an explanation as to his sadness about living in Britain um, and his level of um, unfulfillment mm. as, uh, as a worker, um, as, um, as an immigrant. Um, and all this stuff started coming out. And I was talking about my uncle uh, Rennie and my uncle Cecil, um, Uncle Cecil being my dad's brother, and talking about his wartime experience. And he said, yeah, yeah and, uh, you know, my, uh, there was a great, you've got a great uncle who was in World War I. I said, why? Well, he said, yeah, and he walked with a limp because he was injured. And he was um, a detective in Jamaica as well. And I instantly thought of Death in Paradise. Yeah. Um, I said, Really? And he said, yeah, William Runners was his name, William Runners. And he was a big local sort of figure in the community um, in this area called Green Hills in um, western Jamaica. And, uh, and he fought in World War I. And he, they would, but they wouldn't give him a gun, my dad said. They wouldn't give him a gun. No, they didn't trust, they didn't trust didn't, them. Didn't trust them. Uh, they did give them guns, but they were old-fashioned, effectively musket-type things. Um, so there was a level um, of self-defense that they could employ in dealing with the enemy. But by and large, they were at the mercy of, of the Germans because they weren't given the equipment. Um, and I thought, this is incredible, so I put it in the book. And your, your dad, Norris, yeah. um, he does. he's a very interesting character because mm. he has a truly ambivalent relationship with Britain, he doesn't does, he? He does, he does. And that, it's, it's very nuanced, <gasps> oh, but word. it's really interesting. I mean, just tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I mean, he was a very uh, carefree, good-looking guy in Jamaica. Um, you know, love the sunshine, love the heat, love the carefree life that he had. And he was his own boss, his own boss. He was uh, a shoemaker, cobbler. And of course, he comes to freezing cold Britain, um, where there's racism and bigotry, um, but also an alien environment, an industrial landscape. So imagine coming from the, you know, the beautiful sort of blue of the sky and the, the, the sort of sandy beach and the greens and the, you know, the purples and yellows, the vibrancy of the Caribbean, and you come into grey Lancashire. That was a discombobulation. That was a shock. Um, and then also the realisation that he couldn't really be carefree or as carefree as he was before. He couldn't be the happy-go-lucky guy. He was now having to bring up a family in an environment that he didn't really like. Um, he was somebody else's employee. Um, he had to follow rules. And he's never, he's never really acclimatized and got used to all of that. And in fact, I said to him just a couple of nights ago, I said, you know, the book, he was congratulating me on the book. And he was saying, you've 
got everything in it you wanted? And I said, yes. And I said, I do chronicle your unhappiness. Um, and uh, he said, yeah, well, it was, it was hard. It was, it was tough for me. Um, so, yeah. Um, it's it's good in a way that you're you're still able to have these conversations. Yes, because they're not comfortable conversations, are they? No, really? they're not, and they're actually they're, they're conversations that we're having now because we're getting on so much better than we ever did. Not that we were sort of um, having arguments or stuff, but we just never were in the sit kind of environment or situation where it would foster that freedom of expression and discussion and and conversation because he was quite a distant father when we were growing up. Now, in the book, you say that actually neither of your parents could really... Your mum is Lynn, by the way. Yeah. Could, couldn't point to absolute examples of racism that they'd been put through. Well, they wouldn't. They didn't want they to. They didn't want to. But, but your mum had been a teacher, and yeah. her qualifications were not deemed to be good enough yeah. when, when she got here. Yes. And that yes. must have really rankled. Yes, it, it did rankle. It did rankle. It's, you know, Andrea Levy writes about it brilliantly in Small Island. You know, you've got Hortense, my mum, uh, you know, teaching in Jamaica, uh, feeling that they have a status in society. And being a teacher was such a big thing in the Caribbean because, of course, you know, education for the colonised, the black people, uh, was very basic um, uh, during colonialism. And, and as a result, you know, a black teacher was seen as a big deal. And so there was a status there that my mum had, and all of a sudden that status was taken away from her in moving to the United Kingdom. Um, so that was difficult. But they were also told that they were equal citizens. That was the point of the British Nationality Act of 48. And it was an experiment that had not been done and uh, a, a, a situation that had not been established since the Roman Empire, that an empire said every single member of that empire is equal. You're all citizens. Mm. And that was why you had the Windrush, Empire Windrush, come over. Well, do you know, until I read this book, and I should have known this and I didn't, and I'm just going to admit it, I hadn't realised that so many British people had left Britain uh, after the war, yeah. that in fact Britain turned to the Caribbean because of our other people actually becoming immigrants themselves you, and going abroad. It's a dirty little secret. Well, it's it, is it? Is that secret. how you see it? I mean, I was amazed I do, that I, I didn't do. know. I do see it that way because I, what I think most people believe they know is that there were shortages of manpower yeah. because of the war. I knew that, so you had but I didn't war, know Yeah, why. exactly. War yeah. brides. And some people might have been killed. Yeah. Guys who would have been on building sites and whatever, reconstructed Britain, they were killed in Germany or wherever. Okay. Does that take out enough people of the population to cause a serious manpower shortage? No. What causes the manpower shortage is two million Brits going to Canada or Australia or New Zealand. And you cannot blame them. That's one thing I hope I get across in the yeah. book. That they did not want to hang around Russian book Britain. Who would? You know, Coventry was bombed to bits. The East End was completely flattened. You know, it was there was there was starvation, there was hunger. It was difficult. Yes, Britain won the war, but really, it was on its knees. Owed America a whole ton of money that through the Lend-Lease program. That it was Tony Blair who was the prime minister who paid that off. So that's how poor and knackered and broken broken Britain was. And it was Churchill who said, "Don't leave. We need you guys. We don't want you to become ten pound bombs." Although they didn't exist then, but but he was making the point that you need to stay behind and rebuild the country. But Britain was knackered and those people were knackered. And so they left. So there was a shortage. But the key thing here is that the Nationality Act, under that, making everyone in the, in the empire uh, citizens, equal citizens, 
The British didn't think black people would come. They thought it would be Aussies and Canadians and Kiwis who would come. And then when it turned out the Empire Windrush was full of black people, 11 Labour MPs had a late night meeting with Clement Attlee to try to turn the ship around because they were convinced that Britain's character would change. And it has. It's become multicultural Britain as mm. a result. Uh, and I think that's a good change, but some people don't agree. Well, um, the fact that your parents were reluctant to acknowledge or didn't feel able to acknowledge the racism they'd been, um, they'd been made to put up with, how did they feel about you being really quite upfront about your experience of it? They understand it. They understand why I felt it was important to put that in because there is this understanding, I think, or belief among some people. And in fact, it's been... It's been uh, made clear to me in one interview that I've already done that people might be shocked that my family have been caught up in the Windrush scandal. That was your half-brothers? That was my two half-brothers, Lionel and Peter. That, you know, Clive Myrie, for some reason, he's caught up in this. Like, it's something that only happens to poor people or people who aren't famous or people who haven't achieved anything or... You, do you know what I mean? And I wanted to get across that, actually, racism happens to everybody. Um, Trevor McDonald's family, if they came over in 1948 under that act and in the years after 48, he'd have, his folks would have been in the same situation. Lenny Henry, Moira Stewart, I don't know, name a black person. If they came over under the 48 Act, they could have been caught up in the winter scandal. And that was the point. And I wanted to get that, that across and also get across the fact that, yeah, I might have achieved a few things in life, but that does not stop people using the N-word in correspondence and emails and tweets and whatever does not stop it at all. Let's just sort of talk a little bit about that because that shouldn't be happening and I suppose I might have thought that since you started talking about it in public that it might have stopped, but it still hasn't. But that's interesting why you think well, that I mean, might have maybe happened. Maybe because I'm a lily-livered pinko who hopes that people will reform or just not not behave no, in that way. No, you can't legislate for individuals. Um, what you can do is try to get rid of the structural disadvantages and the structural inbuilt racism that exists. And I think as a society, Britain is on its way to trying to sort of deal with a lot of that, no question. But individuals, yeah, there's always, there's always going to be a loon out there. Always going to, for whatever reason. You cannot legislate for, for someone feeling a certain way about another individual. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know how it's education is what's going to help people like that. Um, but those people used to wind me up. Now I just have unbridled pity because they're just sad losers. Do you reply and that's how to I people? Feel. I said do sometimes, yeah. I do, I do sometimes. I, well, so, so one guy... One guy got in touch. I, I did a, a, a profile. There was a profile of me in the Times. And he got in touch and he said, you know, I, my country has changed and it's disgraceful. You know, I sort of walk around parts of London and it's, it's just horrible. And I see these black people out smoking dope. And, you know, you just... And people like you, you know, you should never have been allowed in here. Never have been allowed. First of all, I was born here. Uh, and I made that clear to this... Um, Gentleman. <laughs> I was told I couldn't swear on it. I was told I couldn't swear. So, uh, so I made that clear. Uh, and, and, uh, and the implication was always from some of these people that you were given the opportunity. You've been given everything that you have. Not that you weren't, not that I earned it. Not that I worked my balls off for the last 30 years as a journalist. You know, 
on occasion getting shot at or whatever. No, none of the, no, you, yeah, you know, you, you've been given everything and you're turning against this country. How can you say you're ashamed of Britain because of the Windrush scandal? I am ashamed of Britain because of the Windrush scandal. No question about it. Um, and I made that clear to him. And I also made, I also spelt out the um, the fine um, print within the 1948 Nationality Act that meant that we were all citizens. Uh, and as a result, um, we didn't just wander over here. We were invited over here to help rebuild this country. And I made the point that I made to you, Jane, that two million white Britons left. So if we hadn't come over or my folks had not come over, Coventry would have, wouldn't have been rebuilt. The NHS would be short of staff as it is now. British Rail wouldn't be running, etc., etc., etc. And then I said, thank you very much. Goodbye. Mm. That was the wonderful Clive Murray. Always nice to see him. And he's had a busy old year, hasn't he? He has. Um, I think he's great. I think um, he is a proper... If he's going to talk anchor men, talk Clive. That's what I say. Proper, yeah. proper bloke. Yeah. Also incredibly stylish. He always has. Really well dressed. Yeah, it doesn't matter what he's wearing, he manages to carry it with style. I do like the rather slim silk scarf that he affects yeah. because not many men can get away with that. I don't think, I can't think of another man who could. Yeah. But somehow on Clive, it works. Mm. Yeah. Yes, Clive Myrie, I'd like more of him in 2024. Well, that's the message that we're all taking into the new year. Thank you very much indeed for listening. It's lovely to have your company on offer. It really wouldn't work without you. So we hope you can join us in 2024 and we'll give it some welly. We'll see where we go with the year and we're full of hope and promise, Jane, aren't we? Yes, yes. Thank you. It's hard to see how 2024 can be any worse no. than 2023, but let's see. No, no. Travel and hope. <laughs> We're bringing the shutters down on another episode of the internationally acclaimed podcast Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. Our Times Radio producer is Rosie Cutler and the podcast executive producer is Henry Tribe. But don't forget that you can get another two hours of us every Monday to Thursday afternoon here on Times Radio. We start at 3pm and you can listen for free on your smart speaker. Just shout Play Times Radio at it. Uh, you can also get us on DAB Radio in the car or on the Times Radio app whilst you're out and about being extremely busy. And you can follow all our tosh behind the mic and elsewhere on our Instagram account. Just go onto Insta and search for Jane and Fee and give us a follow. So in other words, we're everywhere, aren't we, Jane? Pretty much everywhere. Thank you for joining us. And we hope you can join us again on Off Air very soon. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode, and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? 
Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 